This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Esme Weijun Wang, author of the novel The Border of Paradise and the essay collection The Collected Schizophrenias. Wang's work has also appeared in the New York Times and on NPR. Her essays in The Collected Schizophrenias chronicle her experience living with mental and chronic illness. The book explores both analytical and personal details of schizoaffective disorder and other mental health diagnoses, as well as looking at mental illness through a societal, educational, institutional, and marital lens. Esme begins by explaining her turn from fiction to nonfiction. While her first novel was getting rejected by publishers, she started writing nonfiction and essays. The Border of Paradise was rejected 41 times before it found a publisher. I was really struggling and was feeling really sad and wondering if it would ever find a home. And in the meantime, I was having a really hard time with my mental health. I had just been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder after having suffered from symptoms for about eight years without a diagnosis. And around that time, I started writing what was the beginning of the essay Perdition Days, which was the first essay that was published from the collection that is now The Collected Schizophrenias. Um, It's the most memoiristic, perhaps, essay in the collection. And it was, in a way, a therapeutic way for me to write my way through the story of what was happening to me as I experienced Guitar's delusion, the delusion that one is dead. And so that's how my essay writing started. I wrote Perdition Days, it found a home with the toast, rest in peace, the toast. And I found that that essay was oddly popular. I found that a lot of people were reading it. It got picked up by a lot of different newspapers and a lot of people were writing about it. And so I tried my hand at other essays. In a lot of ways, I started writing more essays because I didn't really want to start another novel until The Border of Paradise was published. I didn't feel ready to work on another big work of fiction yet. I'm wondering if you can describe your mental health to our listeners since all these essays all circulate around your state of mind or maybe a more analytical look at mental health in general. So I was initially diagnosed with panic attacks and major depression slash clinical depression when I was about 15 or 16. And that eventually became a diagnosis of bipolar disorder when I was about 17 or 18. Then I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, in about 2013. And then I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, in addition to the schizoaffective disorder, as well as generalized anxiety disorder. That happened a couple of years prior to that. So, so right now, I would say 
that my psychiatric, the picture of my psychiatric diagnosis would be schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. You write in some of your essays, on some level, those are, are words and they're compartments that fit you into some sort of box, I guess. But obviously, that isn't just who you are. Those, those are some things that you suffer from. And can mm-hmm. you talk about sort of the idea of a label versus who you are? Something that I say in the collective schizophrenia is, is that there are many people that don't like labels. They don't like boxes. They don't like diagnoses. I have always found great relief in being diagnosed with illnesses because I like to feel that I am not experiencing an inexplicable condition. Like I, I like to know that I'm not going through something that no one has ever experienced before. And so that's what diagnoses offers to me. So um, something that my work as a researcher. Um, I worked for a number of years as a researcher at Stanford in the mood and anxiety disorders lab. Something that my work as a researcher taught me, though, was that diagnoses are incredibly, in some ways, arbitrary and, and in some ways false. False is a bit of a strong word, but what I mean by that is that if you go through the DSM-5, which is the the Bible of mental disorders in the United States or according to the American Psychiatric Association, they all have conditions that you have to follow in order to fit certain diagnoses. I mean, you can bend those diagnoses if you're a psychiatrist in order to treat people. It's interesting to look at those guidelines. If you ever get a chance to look at the DSM-5, it'll say, somebody needs to feel depressed most of the day, every day for a minimum of four weeks. Um, I believe it's four weeks for a clinical depression diagnosis. Well, what if somebody feels depressed most of the day, every day for three weeks? You know, a a psychiatrist, if, um, if they're actually faced with someone who's in front of them and is feeling very depressed for three weeks, um, they're, they're probably going to treat that person. But for the sake of argument, those guidelines and the way that we look at mental illness is kind of arbitrary. It's the way that humans make sense of things. They give things labels. And so while I really enjoy in some ways having those labels, God, that sounds really weird. Um, but it's true. Like I, I feel a certain amount of comfort in having a diagnosis or a label. While I do feel that 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 comfort, I also know that they are human creations in other ways too. One of the things that really struck me with the essays that you write, and which I've wondered about on my own, is what it's like when you're experiencing an episode, maybe it's some sort of break from what we know as reality, some kind of prolonged maybe psychiatric crisis, that Mm -hmm. you can both be in it and also recognize it. I've always wondered Mm -hmm. about that. And you were able to sort of write about it in a way that let me know that even when you're in the midst of something like this, 
there's some piece of you that's aware that it's happening. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that awareness and and what that feeling is like. I would say for myself, most of the time when I have a psychotic episode, I do have some level of insight. I believe the the false thing that I believe, but there is a very small part of me that knows that something is wrong. However, there have also been times when I've had a psychotic episode where I completely have no insight. And that's very frightening. Um, There's also, uh, and I talk about this in the book as well, a way in which uh, hallucinations can really kidnap the senses. And so that's when I talk about in the book things like ducking when I see a shadowy demon flying at my head because I can't help it because I see something flying at my head and so I have to duck. Or I I see something um, coming toward me and I actually see the thing or I hear something and I actually hear the thing. So, um, or, you know, I hear a woman screaming and so I call 911 because I actually believe that I hear someone calling for help. So that's a bit about my experience with having insight versus not having insight. What's your overall experience of writing about mental illness in terms of how you cope with it? I do find that writing about it while I'm going through it, which is where that kind of Work, that phrase right through the story comes from like I have a sweatshirt that I made that says right through the story I have like a mug that says right through the story it helps me to put difficult experiences down in words that's part of what I love about writing is that I can take something very abstract and amorphous and confusing I can take that thing and try to explain it in concrete language it doesn't necessarily make the situation better. It doesn't necessarily ease my symptoms, but it it does help in some way. One of the things that I was really interested that you wrote about in several of your stories was this theme of biology and that it is your mind, but how our minds and bodies are linked. And what I mean by that is you wrote about some of the trauma that your mom had and that she experienced when she was pregnant. You wrote about your position in the womb Um, where your head was kind of ratcheted up against her pelvis. You wrote Mm -hmm. about your own Lyme disease and the relationship that maybe hasn't been talked about that much between some kind of what we think of more as a traditional sickness and mental illness. Yeah, so something that I was exploring as I was writing the book was the link between what we consider more physiological explanations of illness and mental illness. And part of that came from my visit to a neurologist when I was really sick with what was at that time an undiagnosed illness. And my neurologist said to me, you know, someday we're going to be able to link all mental illnesses to autoimmune disease. And then I started doing some research and found a lot of um, doctors who were ta- doctors and scientists who were talking about that relationship, and um, things such as you know uh, ant- anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is this kind of exploration that say NIMH is doing with their 
research right now that is more biologically based into mental illness. Um, it, it's an interesting road to go down. I don't know where it is going right now. Um, there's certainly a lot of research happening, and it's, an, it's a very exciting field. Um, I'm no longer in it. I was at one point. What's funny about exploring that, though, in my opinion, is that to me, it feels in some ways as mysterious as exploring, I don't know, the spiritual nature of mental illness or, I don't know, or any other aspect of it. The more I explored mental illness from the beginning of the book to the end, the more questions I ended up having. One essay, it was called Reality on Screen, and it was kind of about your experience of, of watching movies and getting sort of lost in it and and some movies that might have tr- might trigger psychotic episodes and others that don't and i can relate because even um you know everyone has has various states of of fragileness in their mind but i too sometimes go to movies and i might have nightmares about about it it takes over my reality in such a way that it really impacts how i function for a while and I and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a spectrum. What you were describing would offer you sometimes breaks breaks from reality. You have a scene in there where your husband's explaining to you how TV works. And I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you could explain your a little bit, you know, just talk about this essay and explain how how this kind of visual medium impacts you. It's exactly what you were just saying. Like, I, I think what was interesting to me and what I wanted to write about in that essay was the spectrum of what film and TV can offer. Um, I was inspired to write it because of an experience I had with the movie Lucy, um, the, the movie starring Scarlett Johansson, in which there's this woman who goes through this odd experience that allows her to use more of her brain than most humans can normally use. And so uh, after I watched it, I started to have this delusion that I could use more of my brain than normal. But because it is a spectrum, I also wanted to talk about how movies and TV are in part built on that premise that you can be lost in their world or in the world of the movie slash film um, that you can, you know, uh, I think uh, I refer to IMAX's tagline is IMAX's believing, which is in some ways an amazing way of claiming that cinema can take over your mind. You know, that's part of what is great about cinema is you can believe that in a movie that the protagonist is truly leaving his loved one and that they're going to be separated forever. And so you cry because you believe this thing that you're watching on the screen. And the more you believe it, the more accolades the film gets because they've given you this experience. Um, And so it is a spectrum. But I also wanted to talk about film and TV as a portrayal of mental illness and the ways in which film and TV can portray things like schizophrenia or the schizophrenia. So in that essay, I also tried to talk about things like the movie A Beautiful Mind and the TV show Legion and the ways that 
and how challenging it is to portray things like delusions and hallucinations. You also talk about how if you're maybe delusional or in a state where maybe you're fragile and feel like that could be really at risk, that you avoid fiction, which is maybe doubly interesting because you're a fiction writer and because you're a writer in general and probably consume a lot of reading. That was an interesting point to me that's probably related to the television, but a little bit different in terms of a written word on the page. Yeah, that was something I discovered when I because I listened to so many audiobooks. I think it first happened to me when I was listening to the audiobook of the Yonalasi writing camp for girls. Um, and I started believing that I owned a horse and that uh, I was a proficient horse writer and competitor. Um, it's funny because like these are things that like happens on some scale to basically everyone. When you read, you you kind of lose yourself in the world of the fiction. Um, that's what people love about Harry Potter and the Twilight books, and you know, and fiction in general. But when I was in that really fragile state, I ended up finding myself in a way to the point where my psychiatrist told me I really needed to avoid fiction because I was I would lose my sense of self completely when I was consuming fiction. You write a lot about your husband, who you call C, and he has been with you for a long time and is so uh, empathetic and seemingly like a great partner for you to get you through these instances. And I'm wondering if you can talk about just writing about him, you know, how much you wanted to expose about your husband, how much you wanted to share with him and and his place in your life. I've actually said in other interviews that when people have asked me, like, oh, you write about so many things, you expose so much of yourself, is there anything that you won't write about? I've said one of the things I won't write about is my, my marriage. Um, but then I ended up writing so much about C in this book. I don't feel like I write about our marriage specifically, but he ends up showing up a lot in this book just because he and I have been together for so long. Um, we've been together since 2001, so that's, I don't know, about 18 years almost. Um, and so he just has been there um, from my first hospitalization till now. And after my best friend read the book for the first time, she told me, you know, in a lot of ways, this book is a testament to your relationship with him. I didn't ask him for permission to write about anything that I wrote about in this book. But I also didn't think I was writing about anything that I would need to ask for permission for. I, I think that there are a lot of things that I could write about that would involve him, but that I wouldn't write about. And that if I did ever feel like writing about those things, I would ask him first. Of course, he's read the book at this point, and I think he's fairly proud of it, which is good. I'm very grateful to have him in my life, and he is a, an enormous part of why I'm still here and how I've managed to survive. Have you ever felt, because you suffer from mental illness, which 
shouldn't have this stigma, but it is a part of your life just as much as it would be a part of your life if you were in a wheelchair. Did any part of you feel on maybe your darkest day that you were unlovable because of that? Of course. So many days. I mean, I felt I felt like a burden so much of the time. And I mean, I have also been in a wheelchair for, you know, some amount of the time as well. So because of illnesses. Um, so there's been a lot and our marriage has also had so many difficulties because of my illnesses, um, mental illnesses and physical illnesses. Like it's been really difficult. But you are loved. I am. And I'm very lucky. As just a character in in your book, see, I mean, obviously he's a real person, but I just fell so in love with him in your essay, The Choice of Children. The essay sort of bounces between you going to a camp for kids with mental illness and he comes with you to be a counselor at this camp. And it's not a very long camp, but it is so intense. You're dealing with these cabins of boys that are fighting with each other and having breaks and, you know, dealing with all kinds of mental illness with all these kids in one cabin. And you're and and you're going kind of back and forth between that and thinking about your decision to have your own children and see is there with you being a, a counselor, being so empathetic and loving to these kids. And that was just such a moving work. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the experience of being at that <laughs> camp and then writing it. Yeah, no, I mean, the funny thing about that camp was that it was his idea to go to be counselors at that camp, to volunteer at that camp. Like when my coworker suggested that I volunteer um, and I brought the idea to see he was the one who was like, yeah, we should do it. So yeah, he was so good with those kids. And there's a moment in the essay when one of the other volunteers at the camp, you know, is watching him with the kids and says to me like, oh, you know, you must be so glad that he'll make such a great father someday or something like that. And that's one of the hardest things about my decision or our decision to not have children is that I know he would be such a good father. What was it like for you being a counselor to these kids? So many mixed emotions. And I had such a hard time with children as I, and I talk about that in the essay, um, I don't feel comfortable with children at all. But if there were any children that I would feel comfortable with, it was these kids because I knew they were going through so much and I could relate to that. And the kid that I end up becoming a minder to in the essay, I ended up just really loving him. He was so, he was going through so much. And in the end, he didn't even say goodbye to us. He was so lost in his own world. It was a really heartbreaking experience, too. Another heartbreaking experience that happened to you that you wrote about was your experience at Yale. So you went to Yale as an undergrad, and you had to leave because you had some mental illness that came rearing up on you, and you couldn't stay. How they treated you and your reapplication process to go back when you were a stellar student and weren't accepted was 
really horrifying and, and also probably a microcosm of what happens at universities around our country for those with mental illness. Yeah, um, so that essay was republished in the Salon Review last in the last couple of weeks, and it went semi-viral, and it's been retweeted. But my tweet about it was retweeted almost 600 times uh, as of this morning. Um, and actually, the New Haven Register ended up writing an article about it. And in the article, they talk about, uh, you know, students who have had experiences recently with the school and who have had difficulties with mental illness and their relationship to the school and how apparently Yale has been rated with an F um, in this area, um, according to some organization. Um, And so, yeah, uh, this is an ongoing issue. Uh, I was going through this uh, in the early 2000s, but after I wrote about it in my blog, Years later, I got emails from people who told me about their experiences decades before I went through it. And according to, you know, stories now, students are still going through it decades after I went through it. So um, this is something that I would love to see change. Um, I don't really know what that would look like, but there are a lot of complicating factors, including issues of liability and there not being best practices. And I know that there are organizations that are working on this issue. And I wish that the Americans with Disabilities Act would would help this change. But um, I don't know. We'll see. I also want to talk about, you know, you are of course, you are so much more than the mental illness that that has plagued you during your life. You have this like bleach blonde hair. You love fashion. You dress really nicely. You describe some of the clothes you wear that are high fashion. You used to write for a fashion blog. How was it that fashion came into your life? And what place, what role does it play? I have loved fashion. For I, I can't even I'm not even sure how long it's been a part of my life. I did start becoming really interested in vintage fashion in high school and then more seriously in college. And then I did a fashion blog in graduate school and then I worked at a fashion startup and I worked for a little bit at a fashion slash culture magazine. My interest in fashion has a lot to do with fashion as a form of armor, which is something that I write about a lot in the book. But I also just find it really fun. Um, It's interesting because I'm not really sure what my relationship to fashion is anymore these days. I think I still try to dress up as much as possible, but I have found with Um, becoming really sick and more disabled, it's been harder to have a relationship to fashion as I leave the house less and less. It's It's been interesting to see how that relationship has changed as I've started to leave the house more again and as I've become more um, mobile. Um, But yeah, I'm kind of rediscovering my love of fashion lately, actually. What makes you laugh? (laughs) Um, 
a lot of things make me laugh, but my husband makes me laugh a lot. Um, we're, I'm actually a, an incredibly silly person. I think that's something that uh, doesn't really come across uh, in my writing or in social media or on the internet. It's like, I'm a very silly person. Some, I did an interview yesterday and they asked like, what is something that I'd like to do that I haven't done yet? And I said, I'd like to do stand-up comedy at least once. Um, I, you know, when I was in college, I, I made callbacks for like the oldest sketch comedy troupe at Yale. I I'm actually like weird to say, like, I'm actually a pretty funny person, but like, I, I think I'm funnier than people might think I am. So yeah, a lot of things make me laugh. I like to laugh. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influence you as a writer? So I'm going to read a passage from Demon Camp by Jen Percy. And this is a brilliant book that I wish got more attention. Um, It came out in 2014. And it's about a soldier who came back from war. And it's about PTSD, but also about demons and trauma and mental illness. You don't think hallucinations are part of PTSD, I asked. Caleb switched the chew from one side of his mouth to the other. He looked to the side, waved to the waitress. I know this is going to sound crazy to you, he said, leaning forward, getting close to my face, but this isn't PTSD. The room was full of the smell of grease, the sound of air conditioning. I watched him chew, the way his jaw muscles flexed to the size of walnuts. He wiped sauce from his teeth. This thing, he said, this big black thing, it can come after anyone. It can come after you and kill you, and it will try to destroy you. It's no joke. The black thing. He said it does not represent anything, and that it's like nothing we know here in this world. He said it's not a metaphor because there are no metaphors for this kind of evil. It was shadow. It was death. It was the gathered souls of all his dead friends. Do you know when it's coming? I said. He put his hands out on either side of him, palms flat, as if he were trapped inside a box. I'll be in a room just like this one, he said, and all at once the windows will go dark. And then the black thing just sort of seeps in. Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose that? I think Jen Percy is one of the most brilliant um, nonfiction writers of my generation. She does amazing reporting, um, but she also studied both fiction and nonfiction at Iowa. So her prose, when she writes about, when she writes nonfiction, is very much um, the prose of a fiction writer in so many ways. And it's very clear in in this book, which is the story of this guy, um, Caleb, this camp that a number of soldiers go to after they come back from the war because they want to get these demons exercised from them that have followed them from the war or that are confronting them after war. And it seems like it's PTSD, but it's actually too strange and unusual to actually seem like PTSD. And so 
Jen Percy follows them and goes to the demon camp and and all of the descriptions are so elegant and creepy and um, the way that she interacts with her subjects is so brilliant. It's a really good book. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. Before the psychosis properly begins, as I experienced during Lucy, I experienced an agitated sense of something being wrong. The wrongness isn't limited to the grotesqueries mutating inside, but is also true of the world at large. How did it get this way? And what am I supposed to do with it? I mean this not only of dailiness, which is full of restless hours that must somehow be spent, but also the sky, the walls, the trees, my dog, the windows, the curtains, the floor, all of which are but a small portion of everything that needs my attention, including everything abstract and concrete, even as my ability to deal with them is at first dwindling and then absent. The more I consider the world, the more I realize that it's supposed to have a cohesion that no longer exists or that it is swiftly losing, either because it is pulling itself apart because it has never been cohesive, because my mind is no longer able to hold the pieces together, or most likely some jumbled combination of the above. I can understand only one piece or the other, even though the sky is supposed to belong to the same world as the curtains, and the dog that enters the room draws my attention as an entirely new object to contend with. People write about the so-called comfort or being insane, in the same way they cavalierly refer to the happy ease of being developmentally disabled. But in this liminal space, I'm aware enough to know that something's wrong. And can you say a little bit more about why you chose that? So I chose that because it is an example of a challenge that I felt I was facing with this book, which is there are things that are easier were easier for me to write about. Um, and then there are things that were harder to write about and the things that were harder to write about were the very abstract things that I felt hadn't, that I hadn't seen written about before that I hadn't seen published about mental illness before that I hadn't seen published about psychosis before. I wanted to find a way to describe a very amorphous and terrifying experience. I wanted to find a way to describe something like that in a way that somebody who had never experienced it might be able to understand. And so that was the challenge I felt I was facing. And I hope that that example that I just read served its purpose. Where do you write? Mostly in bed and mostly on my phone or on an iPad mini. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Anywhere, (laughs) anywhere other than in bed. I love to see my friends. I love to go to karaoke. I love having dinner with friends. I love watching Steven Universe. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my best friend, Miriam. She is always my first reader. Um, Yeah. And, And I also have a wonderful writing group, but they tend not to be my first readers. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, not that well, actually. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, uh, my first book was rejected 41 times, and it was really hard. Um, but I kept going. That's all you can really do is to keep going. 
And what is your favorite word? Um, one of my favorite words is servine. I don't use it that much um, because it's not really a word you can use that often, but um, I love it. I love it so much. I did use it in my first book. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Esme Weijun Wang. Her essay collection is called The Collected Schizophrenias. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.